Let's open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42 in the Pew Bible that's found on page 513. Isaiah chapter 42. We'll be reading the first nine verses. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. In Jesus' name. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to his people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Doug. Thank you for not reading it in Hebrew. It helps too. He could have, you know. Join me in prayer. Let's come around God's word. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. May we not treat this lightly. May it not be so familiar to us that we just lightly pass over it. But may we stay in tune to you this morning. May the Spirit of God have his way in our hearts, showing us, pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Back in the late 60s, located in the deep south among the billboards, was one sign that said, Jesus is coming soon, are you ready? Another sign said, prepare to meet thy God. And on another sign were the words, Jesus is the answer. And then on a large boulder beneath the words, Jesus is the answer, some smart aleck had written these words, so what's the question? (laughs) Now while likely the one who had written those words intended to be funny and perhaps even irreverent, it is cause for, for us to do some pondering on that very thing. 
I mean, why follow Jesus? Is he to be the answer to every question asked? Reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who asked her young class, what's brown, furry, has a long bushy tail, and loves acorns? One little boy raised his hand and says, well, it sounds like a squirrel to me, but I bet the answer is going to be Jesus. (laughs) That's what we do. Jesus, right? When in doubt, it must be Jesus, right? You've been in class when that's happened. Well, what is he the answer to? Well, for Sunday school kids and people raised in the church, perhaps he's just someone that's always been there. Never really thought much on our own about him. We're we're just always in such vicinity to him that we never really stop to look at him. Does familiarity breed contempt? Do we fail to appreciate what we have because we have heard of him for so long? Does that familiarity blind us to value what we have? I mean, to what questions does Jesus provide the answer? Well, over the next several weeks, we will work our way through this very subject. You see, we may know ourselves what it means when we say Jesus is the answer, but the world wants to know what is he the answer to. Is he the answer to all my troubles, that, that they're all my problems and troubles will go away? Is he the answer to my terminal illness and, and I'll be healed? Is he the answer for my financial woes? I will be rich. Is he the answer to everything I want? So to say Jesus is the answer, we must address some of the questions. This is true for ourselves, but most definitely as an apologetic to those who have yet to come to faith. And I begin this series, this Christmas series, by looking at an Old Testament book of the Bible, the book of Isaiah. Now why an Old Testament book for the Christmas season? Why look there for the subject matter on the table? Philip Yancey, who greatly influenced my landing on this subject matter, put it this way. He said, the Old Testament is God's biography. The story of his passionate encounters with people. It is also a prequel to the story of Jesus who came to answer the questions that troubled the ancient writers and still trouble us today. Did you get that? A prequel to the story of Jesus who came to answer the questions that trouble us today. And as the Old Testament closes, many questions remain on the minds of the people of that day. Questions like, do I matter? And why doesn't God do something? Where is he? What's he going to do? When's he going to act? And, and questions like, like, does God care? Those are the same questions, folks, on people's minds today. What did God have in mind in response to those questions, to the troubled heart, to the deepest longings within? Well, the New Testament is clear. Jesus is what God had in mind. In a very real sense, the entire Old Testament serves as a preparation for Jesus. Let's be prepared for what God might have in mind for us this Christmas season. Are you prepared? A grandmother had lots of grandchildren and decided it was too much trouble to get all her grandkids Christmas presents. 
So instead of buying presents, she would send each of them a check with a card with this little note, buy your own presents. Well, a few days after she mailed all those cards, she discovered she forgot to include the checks in the cards. (laughs) Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine all her grandkids opening a card from sweet grandma with a note inside that says, buy your own presents? (laughs) See, it pays sometimes to take a little more time to be prepared. Especially at Christmas. Let's prepare for Christmas with the prophet Isaiah. Now I trust you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 42. We're we're not going to do justice to this chapter. This is so rich. There's so much here. I'm limiting it to the purpose this morning and what we're we're going after. But it's worth noting here. I need to, to, to include you in on this and remind you of this. A little background and context of chapter 42. So stay with me on this. The overall theme of Isaiah could very well be summed up this way, to know him and to make him known. That was God's call to the nation of Israel. However, the nation had gone off course, and yet God kept bringing them back to their mission. Know God, make him known. That is our mission as well. And we get kind of sidetracked and off track and God keeps bringing us back to know God, make him known. That's our mission. Now here's the flow of thought leading up to this chapter. Israel, as I said, was called to make God known to all the nations, yet they failed to make God known to all the nations. Yet what Israel failed to do, the ideal servant as portrayed here in chapter 42 would accomplish it who namely is Jesus Christ. Christ would be for the world what Israel failed to be, the light of the world. And just prior to the verses we're looking at this morning, it speaks to Israel's captivity and release from captivity by a man named Cyrus who was spoken about years before he was even born. But the people have a more serious problem than their captivity. They need to be restored to God. They were estranged from their creator. Cyrus wasn't the answer. No human leader ever is. They needed to fix their eyes on someone else, and that's where Isaiah takes them. Now notice with me chapter 41, verse 29. Before we get to 42, go back to verse 29, the verse just before the chapter break in our Bibles, which they didn't have in the original But notice what it says, verse 20. It says, see or behold, they, meaning gods. So, see they are false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. God is saying, if a national revival were to occur, it wouldn't come through idols. And then the reader's eye is directed away from the pagan gods, away from the world's way, to God's ideal. There's to be no break into the next sentence, Isaiah 42, verse 1, which in the original, by the way, starts with the word see, or behold. See, behold my servants. What is God saying here? See the idols, their faults, verse 29. See my servant, chapter 42, verse 1. 
Now, there's three words for us this morning. The first word to us is see the servants. See the servants. So basic, but see the servants. We are to stop beholding and chasing all those things that are less than God's best for us and behold and embrace God's ideal. I ask you, in what way have you been looking to the things of this world or perhaps even some good things to be the answer to your deepest longings? Has it brought about the desired results? Or has it only led to what it says here in verse 29 of chapter 41? Nothing but a lot of wind and and has left you confused. But you see, so instead of, of looking to the world for answers that it cannot provide, God has something better in mind for you. Look to his servant, Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 42, we might say that God's excited about God. What is it that excites God? It's a good question. What is it that that delights the Lord? Well, the rest of verse 1 of chapter 42 goes on. Let me read it again. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom I delight. Now, similar to the words we find God the Father saying at Jesus' baptism, this is my son, with him I am well pleased. What did God have in mind in this chapter, Isaiah 42? Jesus Christ. See my servant. Is that where our gaze is? Is that whom we're embracing and beholding? See, if we are to change, I mean really change, then it means to fix our gaze on Jesus Christ and deliberately turn from everything that is less than God's ideal for our lives. It is to acknowledge that all those other things we are looking, for, looking to for satisfaction are false. They only leave us empty and confused. Behold Christ. The word for us is the same as the word to the people of Israel. Behold my servant. See my servant. Here is my servant. Brothers and sisters in Christ, behold Christ. Are you struggling in your marriage right now? Behold Christ. Are you jealous of of someone around you? Behold Christ. Are Are you just burning out? Behold Christ. Behold Christ. Everything we do in this church, and I mean everything, and every sermon I preach should move us one step closer to the person of Jesus Christ. He's the answer, folks. Why? What makes him such a compelling person to follow? Well, I want you to notice with me the secondly here, the second word to us is how the servant works. How the servant works as described here in Isaiah 42. Look at the end of verse 1. He said, it reminds us that God's spirit was upon his son. I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Well, in what manner would he bring justice? Verse 2 answers that. Catch this. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. The coming Messiah is portrayed in a different light than, than the world powers who ruled in Isaiah's day. The leaders of that day came shouting and and demanding to be heard. They misused their power to to crush and to smash and to devastate and then, then do their own rebuilding. And in contrast, Jesus didn't come that way. He came in humility. 
He comes in quietness. He didn't grab the throne. He took up the towel. He was so radically different than any other ruler. Jesus' answer to the oppressors is not more oppression, nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance. He didn't come using worldly weapons and scream for change. He came in meekness. Have you noticed? Have you noticed? His followers aren't always viewed that way by the world. All too often, the unbelieving world sees Christians as what? Angry, hateful, loud, obnoxious. Jesus was winsome because he was weak, meek, not weak, meek. His mission was not to search and destroy, but to seek and save. And we would do well to consider how would Jesus respond to the hurts around us, because that's what he's going to speak to next. It's okay, even though it kind of get blown out of proportion, to ask, what would Jesus do? I know the bandwagon and the marketing of that. I'm reminded of a mother who was preparing pancakes for her two sons, and the two began to argue who, who would get the first pancake. The mother saw this as a teachable moment. And she said, remember, boys, what would Jesus do? He'd let the other brother have the first pancake, and he would wait. So the older brother turns to the younger brother and says, Hey, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> Pretty good. We want other people to be Jesus. You be Jesus this time. No. What does it say here? We ought to be Jesus. Look, he tells us what Jesus does. It tells us how he ministered. It tells us how the son works. See how he relates to people here. Look at verse 3. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Now, the reed is a a tall wetland plant. It speaks to that which is weak and fragile and easily waved by the wind. It stands in contrast with a lofty and firm tree. What we have here is a picture of one broken down, perhaps by their sin or, or just not feeling able to bear up against the pressures of life. A bruised reed is one that is broken, but not entirely broken off. It's hanging there. And the point here is that the Redeemer, the one who came near, will not make those already broken down more wretched. When Jesus came to one who looked like a reed bent over, about to break, he didn't finish the job. He ministered to them. He did not break the bruised who are already hurt with sharp criticism or I told you so. No, the gospel presents this man, Jesus, as one who was moved with compassion, was filled with pity. Everyone needs compassion, we sang earlier. One whose heart goes out to those who are hurting. And a smoldering wick here speaks to that flame which is ready to go out or to be extinguished. And even when it shines, it does with a dying luster. It's a picture of of one who once shone brightly but now is only a flicker. Do you know someone like that? What is it that person needs? His light's about to go out. What is that person? A kick in the pants? Far be it for the Lord to come along and blow out your flickering flame. 
Jesus pictures one who doesn't come along and blow out the most dimly guttering lamp wick. Instead, what does he do? He trims it. He rests it more deeply in the oil. Jesus wants to come and he wants to rekindle your flame. How about you? Are you a bruised reed this morning? Have you become disheartened as of late? Hurt by by someone's betrayal or wounded by a person's unkind words or, or badly beaten over your own personal failure? Do you feel quite fragile right now? You're ready to break. Or does a smoldering wick describe you as of late? Your passion for the Lord is kind of there, but it's just a flicker right now. It's about to go out. You even sense that the fire of your faith is going to go out. Have you been chasing a dream that hasn't come to fruition? Are you dissatisfied with the direction of your life? Are you feeling overwhelmed by stress? God comes to you in your hurts. Not to crush you, but to lift you up. Not to blow out the flickering flame, but to fan it into flame and ignite it again. He stands ready to minister to the ones who are beaten, fragile, smoldering, and weary. Let him be the answer to your hurt this morning. And the reason Jesus is able to speak to our hurt, we see how he works here. He can speak to our hurt because of what it says at the end of verse 3. And faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. In other words, he persists in righteousness. Jesus carried out his ministry according to truth. But also nothing was able to extinguish his fiery zeal or break his strength. And his gentleness and meekness, he was not weak-willed. Look at verse 4, says, He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth and his law the islands will put their hope. See, he can help us. Because while identifying with our weaknesses, he overcame them by the power of the Holy Spirit and independence upon God the Father. See my servant, God says. Fix your gaze on him. Secondly, we see how the servant works. And then thirdly, thirdly, we must reach beyond our small world for the glory of Christ. We must reach beyond our small world for the glory of Christ. And I warn you, this is where the sermon gets real hard. Follow along as I read verses 5 through 9. I'm going to stop along the way. Verse 5, this is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. He says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, verse 8 says. That is my name. Now the Lord is a covenant name that God gave to Moses as he called him to a specific ministry. That name, the Lord, speaks to the personal, unchanging, inescapable reality of the only true God who came to Israel and comes to us. Verse 8 continues. Middle of verse 8 says, I will not give my glory to another, or literally. And the Hebrew says, my glory to another I will not give. The order of those words is to place emphasis on God's glory and its close association to His name. The ultimate end that God has in mind is to glorify Himself. The choir sang it earlier, glorify Thy name, glorify Thy name. That's the ultimate end 
of all that God is doing is to glorify himself. It always has been and always will be. And if we miss that, then we miss the whole of Scripture where God is taking everything. God's concern for his own glory is our good news. It's our saving grace. God's glory lies in the capacity to do all the things that idols cannot, that no one else can do for us. For God says at the end of verse 8 that he will not give his praise to idols. Verse 9 says, See the former things have taken place and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. You see, God was going to work in a way previously unheard of. And not only would he bring his people out of captivity to their homeland, but he would reach far beyond his own people and be a light to the whole world. The servant is called to see beyond his own circle and see as God sees. And you see what God's doing? He he messes all the time with status quo. All the time. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, because it expounds on this. And this is really the application for this morning. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, another chapter on the ideal servant. Speaking of Jesus, but carries by application to our lives. Isaiah 49, verse 6, God the Father speaks to God the Son. And he says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, did you notice the phrase there? Too small a thing. Interesting, isn't it? It was too small a thing to restore Israel. How so? What did God have in mind? What ultimate end did God have in mind when he sent his son to reach the world? What did God have in mind in sending his son? What does God have in mind for his people, his followers, to be light of the world? It is too small a thing to remain comfortable where we are at. We might think, life is good. I have my family. I have a good church. There's comfort. There's ease. But it is too small a thing to be content with that. God calls us to see beyond our own circle and see as God sees. There are people all around us who desperately need Jesus Christ. What are we doing? We might think, compared to where I was 20 years ago to where I am today, there's been tremendous change. But it is too small a thing to remain where you are at and figure that's good enough. Leave me alone now, God. I've grown enough. It's too small a thing. If we have to ask, we must ask, what does God have in mind? Does he have so much more for us? Is what we're doing in God's eyes too small a thing? Is it? Will you let this Christmas season, as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, to see beyond our little worlds? And it gets so small sometimes. To see what God sees. Jesus is the answer. But he isn't only the answer to meet our need. He is the answer to a a world with lots of questions. Lots of confusion. And emptiness. And pain. And heartache. And they're man-made devices and strategies for trying to make life work. We are to be, as Bonhoeffer called Jesus, a man for others. That's why we exist. 
for others. Not ourselves. Are you described as a man for others? Are you described as a woman for others? There are a lot of bruised reeds and smoldering wicks that we pass by every single day about to break. Flame about to go out. What are the questions they're asking? Do we know what the questions they're asking? Someone has said people are dying for answers and Christians are stuttering. Are you prepared for Christmas? I mean, are you prepared to see what God sees? Will you prepare by spending time with the one whose birth we celebrate? Behold his servants. See how he works. Reach beyond our small world for the glory of Christ. You see, we do not change for the sake of newness, but change for the sake of reaching people beyond our small world for the glory of Christ. Let me give you that to you again. We do not change for the sake of newness, but change for the sake of reaching people beyond our small world for the glory of Christ. Are you prepared to have God expand your vision and manifest His light through you this Christmas season? People are asking a lot of questions. Do we know what they are? We let the light shine through you. I'm reminded of a traveler in a French village on a Sunday evening. And he saw people hurrying through the streets to the church, each one of them carrying a lamp. This French traveler stopped someone and he asked, what is it that you're doing? Why are people carrying lamps? And the carrier, one carrier of the lamp replied, well, we have no other way of lighting the church. When it was built in 1550, the village mayor decided that each member should bring his own lamp to church. Everyone goes there to make it brighter, for he knows if he stays away, the church will be darker and the service gloomier. The traveler, very interested at this time, followed the man to the church. And entering the church, the traveler saw in every single pew a place to hang a lighted lamp. And as people kept arriving, the glow from the lamps became brighter and brighter and brighter. Now, light in the church is a needful thing. But the greatest need is light in its darkest places. Letting your light shine here, that's a good thing. However, it's too small a thing. We need to carry the light outside of the church into a dark world. Is your light shining? Is your light obscured? Is it but a flicker? Well, go to Jesus, let him fan the flame again, let it shine this Christmas season because Jesus is the answer, really the answer to the deepest questions of the heart. Let's see beyond our little circle and see what God sees and allow him to manifest his light through us because we can safely say that is what God has in mind. That's what he wants to do through us. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy in here, really, to let our light shine, but you ask more of us than that. I pray that as we leave here, as we go out into the world this week, Lord, that we would be mindful of the importance of letting our light shine. The darkest corners of this world, the darkest hearts around us of people who are confused and weak and fragile and have lots of questions. Lord, may we be Christ and introduce them to Jesus Christ. 
May we have that opportunity this Christmas season to bring others into the light of the gospel for your glory, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.